0: You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. How you doing, Revolution Church? That's all right, I'll take it. Kind of to finish up uh, an announcement that that Brandon forgot to say, that Valentine's Day dinner that's going to be on February 11th, whether you're single, married, engaged, dating somebody, you don't have to come with someone. We just want you to come, right? So this isn't just a thing for couples. We just wanted to make sure of that, right? So bring your dog, whatever. Just come and hang out with us. Uh, we're not excluding anybody, so we'll always be hanging out, single, married, whatever. Um, so you guys doing okay? Woo! Yeah. All right. Yeah. <laughs> this is the most people we've ever had sit in, like, the first two rows ever, like, I it's actually funny. Uh, Stephen's brother Brandon came in here and yeah, what's up, man? And uh, he said, "Why is no one sitting in the front?" And I said, "Dude, like we're Baptist. I was like, "No one sits in the front row. Everyone always likes to sit in the back." Back row, Joe. Um, but anyway, uh, if you're new here, my name is David Dowdy. I am the lead teaching pastor uh, here at Revolution. And uh, what we're doing this evening is we are continuing through a series that we've been in for a few months now called Bible Stories, and it's subtitled Christ in the Old Testament. And what we're doing is we're looking at uh, 35 or 40 of the most famous Old Testament stories, and we're seeing how they all point forward to Jesus. Because the New Testament tells us everything in the Old Testament was just a type and shadow and foreshadowing of the one who was to come, who is Jesus. So we've just been looking and seeing how that that is true and how all these stories point forward to Christ. Um, And I'll be honest, I don't know how you guys feel about this series. This has been so much fun for me. To go back through all these stories that I learned like on a felt board in Sunday school class. You know what I'm talking about? Those things were fun. Um, And just see that these aren't just morality tales. Um, That it's not just, you know, it's not like uh, Grimm's fairy tales from like the first century and back, right? It's not like that. Um, It's this phenomenal book full of uh, historical accounts about bad people and a good savior, Right? It's not a story of good guys and bad guys, but it's just awesome to see how God is a great Savior and a gracious God towards people who don't deserve it. And that's just this running theme throughout the whole Bible. Um, but this evening, we are going to be continuing in the book of Exodus. We're going to be in Exodus chapters 13 and 14 if you're a Bible flipper. Uh, if not, the screen will have it up here, and there's also Bibles in the backs of those pews. If you're new and you don't have a Bible or the Bible you have is hard to read, take that with you. Um, either one of those Bibles will do. Um, But anyway, we're going to be looking uh, in Exodus at the Red Sea Crossing. You guys know what I'm talking about? You ever seen the old Ten Commandments flick with Charlton Heston? Just like the water's part. It's just real old and kind of cheesy, but like for the time was really solid. Um, We've probably all seen this. Anyone seen Exodus, Gods and Kings? Did anyone watch that with Christian Bale? Horrible film, was it not? Not. Like, just, I mean, just God-awful. Like, Hollywood just kind of needs to make their distance from the Bible, right? Just pagan, mm, so bad. They made God into, like, an eight-year-old child? Yeah. Like, God who has no body. Like, somehow we just missed that point of the scriptures. God has no body. We're going to make him into an eight-year-old boy. It'll be awesome. Uh, He's going to talk to Batman. It's going to be fantastic. Um, Right? Most of those movies just have horrible theology. Just don't, they're fun, they're entertaining, whatever. Just don't take any of your theology from them. Um, But... So, so we're familiar with the fact that God parted the Red Sea so that the Israelites could cross through on dry ground. And then he brought the sea back together to drown the Egyptian army that was following them. A lot of us are familiar with that. Um, but I think that there's a lot more to this story than just the miracle of the waters being parted. Right? I think there's a whole lot more to it than, than just that. Because this narrative is full of reminders for us about God's leadership. That's the first thing we're going to talk about this evening. And where it can take us. And God's leadership can take us to really, really, really difficult places, really hard spots in our lives um, where we feel cornered. Um, But it's also a solid reminder to us that even in the midst of suffering for righteousness sake, as Jesus would would say, or suffering for following God, that God is with us and has not forsaken us. Um, And it's it's really a gracious thing that God would do to put reminders like this in uh, the Bible in order to encourage us to persevere, because this is one of the means that God uses for believers to encourage us to persevere in faith until death. Um, so I appreciate that the Lord would put these things in Scripture. Um, so as we consider what God's Word has to say to us this evening, I really want us all to sort of look in ourselves and ask some really pithy questions. Um, like these, is God leading me? you I to mean, ask yourself that question this evening. Is God leading me or am I leading me? Further, am am I willing to sell all and lose all and suffer all things for the sake of gaining Christ? Am I willing to do that? Do I understand? Do I really understand, not just checking it off on a list of things that I assent to because it's good doctrine or whatever, but do I really in my heart understand that God's leadership can take me to hard places of suffering? Have I accepted that fact, and do I believe it's worth it? Do I believe it's worth it? Do I believe that God will see me through those times so that I can continue on faithfully somehow? Do I believe those things? Ask yourself those questions this evening. And I hope that you'll see, as you you ask that and as we look at what the Word has to say, um, that you'll see, as I have this past week, that God is worth every trial and every ounce of pain and that He will see us through everything, loving us and giving us strength to persevere. That's what I'm hoping that we're going to see. All right, so that being said, um, we 're going to do a little bit of a recap, and then we 're going to get into the scriptures, right So just we all know i 'm not dropping you all in into, into a story that you don 't know anything about um, so we 've seen so far that God has called Israel out of slavery because of his promise that He made to Abraham back in Genesis, right that the Israelites were going to be slaves, but then after four hundred and thirty years, he was going to bring them out of slavery. Right? So God is, is operating on that. The Bible says he remembered his promise, which is just another way of God. Uh, saying he's about to act on behalf of his people because of a covenant that he made with Abraham. Um, And God, in doing that, calls a man named Moses out as a prophet. Uh, prophet just means someone who is a mouthpiece for God. So Moses is speaking on behalf of God, acting on behalf of God, as God tells him what to do. And Moses goes to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and tells him, God demands that you let Israel go and worship him. And Pharaoh, we saw a couple weeks ago, arrogantly refuses. And he asks the question, who is the Lord? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? He said, I don't know the Lord, and furthermore, I will not let the Israelites go. So in response, kind of ironically, to that question, Well, who is the Lord that I should obey him? God answers him with the plagues on Egypt. Right And in the plagues, we saw that God is a just God and a merciful God, and He's the only God, regardless of how many gods the Egyptians had, that He is the only one, that He is sovereign over all things that come to pass, that He controls the world and everything in it, and that He is a God to be greatly feared and respected and loved. And so He revealed Himself to the Israelites and the Egyptians and the whole world. And then last week, we saw that God goes on to spare the Israelites from the final plague, right the death of the firstborn, and that God did that by the sacrifice and shed blood of the Passover lamb, which we saw points us straight to Jesus Christ as our substitute, a perfect substitute whose blood must be applied to our lives. And then after saving the Israelites from the final plague, we saw last week that the Israelites go free from slavery. Uh, and, and, and spoiler alert, they're never going to be slaves again, right? ever again, to this pharaoh. There's some bad stuffs going to happen. There's Babylonian captivity. Read the rest of the Old Testament. It kind of goes bad real quick for these guys, but it's never to that Pharaoh ever again because God freed them by His grace. All right, so we've seen how these last few chapters in Exodus point us to the spiritual truths of who God is and how God saves sinners. Right, And and there are physical events that we've watched, right, like the plagues and all that, that have led us to spiritual truths. Right? That God shows us who he is, which leads us to a fear of God, which leads to salvation and conversion. Right? God shows himself through the plagues. This is who I am, Israel. They fear him, and then he shows them a way to avoid his wrath. Right? So I'm arguing, some people call it spiritualizing a text, uh, is what theologians will call it. Which just means that physical truths point us to spiritual realities. We see it all over the Old Testament. We do it all the time whenever we read the Bible. Um, but now we're going to see, this week, through physical events, the spiritual truths of what a life looks like after conversion. All right, so I know this might sound kind of strange. So looking, Again, I'm making the argument that the Passover lamb uh, was a foreshadowing of a, of a Christian being converted, right, applying the blood of the lamb, and now we're going to see what their lives would look like after that. So what does a Christian life look like after conversion? What are the life patterns of a Christian? What should we expect as a disciple of Jesus? Right? So that's what I'm aiming at this evening. Um, So I'm going to pray and then we're going to hop into Exodus 13 verses 17 through 22 and we're going to be weaving in and out of the text. So let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for all the people that are here. Holy Spirit, please open the eyes of our hearts that we might receive your word and leave here changed that the unbelievers that are here this evening would come to know you, that you'd begin to woo them towards you And that the believers that are here would be encouraged. Encouraged to persevere. God, show us your goodness. Please do a sovereign act of grace here. In Jesus' name, amen. Alright, so Exodus. Chapter 13, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said... Lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Sukkoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. All right, so after saving Israel, right, from the, from the plague of the, the death of the firstborn in every house and setting them free, right, the exodus has happened already, um, what's the first thing we see God doing? God's leading the people, right? God is leading the people of God. It says, by a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud, by day and by night, doesn't depart from them. He is constantly leading his people, right? Which, which got me thinking that God doesn't just save us from eternal wrath, right? He didn't just save them from the death of the firstborn and then lead them out of Egypt and then just turn them loose and say, you know, do what you will from now on, um, God doesn't do that with us. Whenever he saves us, whenever we come to know Jesus, he doesn't just spare us from eternal damnation and hell, but rather he continues to lead us through the rest of this life. And he does this, uh, I believe, be, because he wants us to know him. And in following his leadership and, and, and looking at his commands and how he would have us live and, and, and heeding his word, we come to know him more because he reveals himself through his commands, through his word, through his leadership. Right And God wants us to know him and enjoy him. Right? And the way we know him is by submitting to his leadership. Right? So he doesn't just leave us and say, you know, do whatever you want now. He says, I want you to know me because that's what heaven is. Is We're going to know God more and more and more and enjoy him more and more and more. So God wants our joy. So he wants to lead us so that as he brings us through trials, as we see that he is a good father, as we see He's a good God and a providing God and a saving God and a sanctifying God, we can know him deeper and enjoy him more. So God wants to lead us after He saves us. Um, but not only does He want that, he, he demands that. Right? So I think now it's a, it's a good time to make a note that those whom God saves, I think we can see this from the text, those whom God saves become those who follow Him. Right? We don't anyone have heard of the term easy believism. Thank you. One guy. Right on. That's what I'm talking about. Right. Easy believism is this foolish thought. That if you just check off a list of six or seven, seven things that you believe that the Christian faith says, that now you're a Christian. Like, yes, I believe Jesus died for sin. I believe he was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, raised, was raised from the dead and ascended to heaven. Now I'm a Christian. And it's just from uh, mentally assenting to some of these facts. That's not what the Bible says. That does not make someone a Christian. Genuine repentance, turning from the life you've been living and putting your faith in Christ and following him, right, is what makes someone a Christian, and this is all a work of the Holy Spirit in your life to make Christ desirable for you to do that. But nevertheless, we must turn from our sin and begin to follow Jesus and become a disciple of Jesus. Right, so those whom Christ has saved will begin to follow him. That's why Jesus doesn't just say, believe on me, and that's it. He says, believe on me, and now come and follow me. Right? So like the Puritans used to say, if Jesus is your Savior, then he must be your Lord. If He's not your Lord, He's not your Savior. So if you are not following Jesus right now, you're not a Christian and you still stand condemned under the wrath of God. It doesn't matter how often you go to church. It doesn't matter if you were born into a Christian family. That's not good enough. If Jesus is not your Lord, if you're not following Him in faith and repentance daily, if you're not being led by God now, you're not saved. I, I can't stress that to you enough. There are so many people in churches that are going to hell because they, they aren't told these things. We must, if, if God has saved us, we must follow him. All right, so God saves us so that he can lead us. And I think it's really funny to consider in verse 17, it says, God began to lead them not through the land of the Philistines, though that was near, but he led them through the wilderness instead. I think it's really funny that, that God leads his people... All right, at least in this instance for certain, in a way that was probably the opposite of what they would have chosen for themselves. Right? The land of the Philistines, again, was easier. It would have been closer instead of going down this desert road through the wilderness. But God, indeed, led them through the wilderness. And he says it's for their benefit. Verse 17, the second half, he says, why is he leading them through the wilderness and not through the easy route through the land of the Philistines? He says, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Right, So I, I don't want us to miss that. That it's actually gracious of God that he would lead them not in the easy way, but lead them in the hard way because he knows what would happen to them should they go this easy route that they would be destroyed by the Philistines. Right? So often, it's good to know that the way God would lead us in this life is not the quickest and easiest way. If you've been a Christian for more than a month, right, you know this. It's not always the easiest way. It's not always the quickest way. But Because of that, because it's often the hard way, it's often the way of the wilderness, sometimes we begin to view the commands and demands of God as a burden. Like, I can't be the only one that thinks this from time to time. Why can't I just do what I want to do? Why can't I just be a tad dishonest here and gain more money? Why can't I just do what I want here and preserve a relationship with somebody rather than com- confronting them with the truth of the gospel? Why can't I just take the easy route? And the commands of God sometimes seem arbitrary or a burden to us, and that's because of our sinful nature, right? Just because you become a Christian doesn't mean all of a sudden you want to submit to every single thing that God tells you and that you're always super like in gear to go and follow Him in, in perfect obedience, The Bible says that we now have two natures. We have a new nature in Christ. We've been saved. We've been changed. We now desire Christ, and we did not before. But there's indwelling sin in us that we must fight. We must die to ourselves daily. We must put the old man to death, essentially. Romans 7 talks about this a lot. So we have two natures in us, and because of that sinful nature that still resides in us, though it has been conquered by Christ, we sometimes begin to view the commands and word of God as a burden to us because it's hard. But I think that there's a remedy for that, right? I I think that we sometimes view the commands of God as a burden because we don't have a really good view of God's word, right? And we need a better one. And I'm just as guilty of this as anybody else. Um, So what I want to do real quick is I want us to look at a handful of verses. Uh, I should have read the whole chapter to you, but it's Psalm 119. Like two people probably thought that was funny. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the entire Bible. It's, it's larger than a lot of books. It's like, is 150 verses? More than that? Yeah, thank you. Kelly knows more about the Bible than I do. You want the mic? I'm just kidding, man. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but Kelly's in seminary, so like, I like to make jokes that Kelly's smarter than me all the time because he is. Um, but yeah, so Psalm 119. It's the longest chapter in the whole Bible, and it's all about the law. It's all about how the the psalmist loves the law of God. He loves the word of God. He loves the commands. And he says so many positive things about it. So I think that rather than us go through life whenever uh, the commands are hard and saying this is a burden, this is terrible, that I want us to look at just like six or seven verses and see how we should think about the law and what's true about the commands of God and his leadership. So Psalm 119, I'm just going to blast through some verses. Verse 37 Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Right? So in in the word of God, there is life. In God's leadership, there is life. And everything else is worthless by comparison. Verse 46, I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and I shall not be put to shame. There's no shame in this. Uh, There's eternal scorn and eternal shame in neglecting the law of God and not following Him. But for those of us who do, it's glory and honor because of Christ. Verse 72, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Priceless. This law is good. It's worth more than any kind of riches that I might amass in this life. Verse 96, I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. So everything else that seems perfect has, a, has something wrong with it to some extent, but the law is perfect and good and righteous. 98, your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. So it's a fool who disobeys the law, but the law gives wisdom to those who heed it. 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. probably the most famous verse in that. Which means we're wandering in darkness apart from the commands of God, but yet this shows us the way, this shows us how to be righteous, this shows us who God is. 111, your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. The Word of God is joy-inducing. Following the leadership of God gives joy. So if I could sum all that up, I would say this. Following the law of God, following the commands and leadership of God is life-giving. So I know what some of you guys are thinking. This sounds like legalism. I want to make make a, a distinction. Obedience to the law will not save anybody. The Bible is very clear in the New Testament. By works of the law shall no man be justified in God's sight. Right? Only by faith alone in Christ alone. You cannot be a good enough person to inherit eternal life. It comes only through the person and work of Jesus, because he's the only one who perfectly obeyed the law. The Bible says disobey the law at any point. You deserve to go to hell, and God's a just judge, so that's what you'll get. But through faith in Christ, you get his righteousness credited to you. So I want to make that clear. What I mean, though, that following God's law gives life. Remember, I want us to get a good view of the commands and leadership of God. is, is this. The law of God gives life in the sense that this is hands down the best way to live. Even if a person were to be completely, like, n- not a believer, but what was to follow the precepts of what the Bible says and live by the concepts of the Bible, it would be a better person for it. Their life would have less trouble for the most part. Even if you were to go to hell later, right, you'd be a moral person. You'd be a loving person person. You'd be a good husband. You'd be a good, a good spouse. You'd be a good parent. You'd be a hard worker, right? You, there's a solid chance you wouldn't get like STDs, things like that, right? If you're following the commands of God, right? You're going to be faithful to one spouse. You're going to be absent, those kinds of things. Your life is just going to go easier. Addiction wouldn't be a thing for you because you'd be on guard against that because you'd be following the law of God, right? So again, the, the law of God gives life. He's protecting us from all kinds of things that would rob us of our joy and, and hurting us. And hurt us, rather. So God doesn't lead us by his word in order to take our joy. Rather, he knows that joy is found in him. And in his word, he reveals who he is. So he's protecting us from the things that would rob us of joy. I just want us to have a very high view of the commands and leadership of God, even though it's not always the quickest and easiest way. But I just want you to consider this if you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, this isn't isn't for you. Uh, But it could be if you repent and put your faith in Christ. But Christians... God has saved you from eternal damnation through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Good news. Good news. A loving God. And he did this so you could enter into his joy-giving presence. God has proven in that act alone, not even counting the other ones, he has proven that he loves you and is for your joy and will act on your behalf to give you that joy. He's not out to rob you of anything. Even though His commands might be hard, He's not out to take any kind of joy or pleasure. Rather, He's trying to take away counterfeit pleasure that will ultimately lead towards destruction. If you trust Him to save you, surely you can trust Him to lead you through the rest of this life. But as far as God wanting us to have joy in His presence for eternity, God not only wants that, but He wants us to begin to have this life of joy now. Right? And again, joy is in knowing Him. And to know him is to love him, and to love him is to keep his commandments. This is what Jesus tells us in the Gospel of John. All right, so God leads us by his word so we may keep from sin that will destroy us and rob us of true joy. So that being said, with a very high view of the law of God. I love that baby so much. <laughs> Lily, you've made it onto two podcasts now. God bless you. <laughs> She's going to be a singer of a metal band. Um, but seriously though, in, in light of the law and having a high view of the law and that God is for our joy and that those whom God saves follow Him because He becomes their leader because they love Him and they want to know Him deeply. I would ask you this, who leads you? And whether you feel like you were knocking it out of the park this week or not, you did not submit to the, to the commands of God in some aspect this week. Today, dare I say it, because we sin every day. Who, but who, who is leading you? You or God? Who is consistently leading you? Because the people of God are those actually being led by God. Ask yourself that question. Don't deceive yourself if you're actually an unbeliever, if you're not actually following Christ. Don't deceive yourself. But, 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 but Let's be honest with ourselves here for a second. I ask that question because if you lead you and you're honest with yourself, you will no doubt go straight through the land of the Philistines, won't you? Would you not pick the easiest route or the path of least resistance? Will you not do that every time? And what did God say would happen if they went through the land of the Philistines? War would break out and they would end up scattering back to their slavery in Egypt and he wanted to keep them from that. If we lead ourselves, we're, we're always going to lead ourselves to a destruction and a return to our former slavery. But God promises us, though it may be difficult at times, that He will lead us to freedom both now and in the life to come. And I'm sure some of you are thinking what, what, what I think whenever I consider this. Like, okay, so I'm supposed to be led by God. And you said the Israelites were led by God in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. Where's my pillar of cloud and fire, right? Like, how much easier would that be? Who should I marry? well, a bunch of smoke and fire appeared behind her and I knew she was the one, right? Or like, which is what I saw with Autumn. But like, I don't know if there was like a house was on fire or something. Or like, you know, like the job. Like, I just saw a pillar of fire come out behind the building, which usually would mean like that building's burning down and you're probably not going to have a job there, so don't take that job, um, right? But we, we, asked the, we, we asked the question, where is my pillar? Where is my pillar that I'm supposed to follow if we're, if we're supposed to follow the lead and command of God? If you haven't seeing that I'm pointing to this already, we have something at least equal to the pillars of fire and cloud, if not better than that. We have the completely sufficient Word of God. We have the Bible. Like, think about the grace that God gives us in giving us the Scriptures. Hey, I want you to know me. I don't want you to wander in darkness Right? I know that God's given us a measure of light in nature, but as John Calvin says, we're utterly walking in darkness, but the Bible shines a light on the path that we might know who God is and know what He would want from us and have an actual leadership in our lives. God's given us the Scriptures, the completed Word of God that is not going to be added to, it's done, there's no more prophecy, any of that stuff. We just have the Scriptures. But not only that, right? because that, that's grace. But in grace upon grace, we have the Holy Spirit's work of illumination in our heart. Right? It's this doctrine. You should look it up if I don't explain it deeply because we don't have a ton of time. The Holy Spirit illuminates the Bible to us. Right? For the believer, the Holy Spirit works alongside the Word in order to give us understanding of the Word and to guide us so that we might know the Lord. Right? And He does this as we study and reflect. Paul, in one of his letters to Timothy, I'm blanking on which one, he tells Timothy, He said, Think on the things that I have written to you and God will give you understanding. Right? So this isn't just we just pray for, some, for the Holy Spirit to do this work of illumination in our lives and then just read it and never think about it. But we meditate on it. We study the Word. And God promises to do something in us to show us the truth in order to change us. And I'm not just making that up. First Corinthians 2.12 says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us, by God there's the doctrine of illumination so this is a supernatural work of God and it ought to be prayed for this is not something you should, you're a fool if you read your bible without ever praying to ask God to show you something in it right if you don't do that more like more than likely you're going to do what I did for a long time and you're going to just read the bible like a newspaper right like got you lord you led the israelites out of egypt let's move on like you're just getting the base facts but you're seeing nothing else to show you the importance of this, Psalm 119 asks God for this work of illumination uh, over a dozen times, I think. Saying, please, teach me. Please, reveal to me. Please, show me the truth in your word. Right? So, pray for those things. Read your Bible. Dare I say it. Right? Seriously, like a lot of people had to die to get you a Bible in English. Not only that, but God gave it to you, so read it. And the Bible says it's like a wise man. The first psalm says it's good. It's a wise person that meditates on the law day and night. So do that. Read the Bible. Read it every day. Pray for illumination so that God might lead you. And I just want to take one more second and note this. There is a ton of freedom in this kind of leading by the spirits working through the word. Think about this. Uh, we, this is like it's a trumpet that we blow here at Revolution all the time. God is sovereign over everything, and the Bible teaches that, right? Nothing happens except that which God has decreed. And not only that, but God then in his word also tells us how he would have us live, what kind of guidelines, what kind of principles. They may not speak to every situation specifically. He gives us concepts and standards that he would have us live by as we read the Bible. So think about this. In the leadership of God, whenever we have decisions to make, all you have to do is ask yourself this. What's God's standard? Out of my options that I have, is it sin? Are either of these options sinful? And if they're not, then just choose the one that's not sinful or choose either one and trust God's sovereignty because you can't botch it. That's a beautiful thing whenever we're considering the leadership of God. All we have to do is ask, is it sin? And if it's not, then we're free to do because we're following the lead of God and God's sovereignty prevents us from screwing it up. So there's much freedom here in this leading, that there's no worries for us. But again, the leadership of God. We must be led by him. Right, so everything seems pretty good for the Israelites. They're being led out. He's got them going through the wilderness. It's a tad bit of a detour, but you know, whatever, they can handle it. So they're going through the wilderness, Exodus 14, 1-9. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of pi Hahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Ziphon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, and they did so. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-Hahiroth in front of baal This is heavy. Because the people of God follow God's leadership and they're obeying him. In verses 1 through 4, he says, hey, I know you're in camp at this place called Etham. What I want you to do is I want you to backpedal and go to this other place, and where he has them to go, they are hemmed in on every side. They have the sea at their back. They have a place called Pi-Hahiroth and baal on either side of them. There is one exit route. And then they see the army coming toward the one exit route that they have. So in following the leadership of God, he has, remember, they were in camp somewhere already and he says, no, Moses, tell them to go to this other place where I'm going to hem them in and an army is going to be coming at them to either slaughter them or bring them back to their slavery. Think about that for a second. God intentionally led them to a place where this would happen. He has his own purposes for this, but he led them. They have no way out. This is a terrifying situation, and I just really want to take this. I understand the leadership of God is good, and we just talked about that a lot, but this is a really solid reminder to us that obedience and submission to God's lead does not necessarily lead us to an easy life. In fact, it rarely does. Following Jesus in discipleship is going to cost us something at some point. And if it's never cost you anything at this point, I would ask you, are you actually a Christian? You've never been in an awkward situation? You've never been in any kind of nothing ever? It's cost you nothing? We see right off the bat with the people of God. They're led out of slavery and immediately in a place like this. It's going to cost us something. Walking in faith and obedience to God can and will lead us to a place where we feel cornered and as if we have no escape. And in that moment, we will become incredibly tempted to sin. We will be very tempted to shake off the leadership of God and begin to lead ourselves. Because we can metaphorically see the Egyptians coming, we can see the suffering coming down the road, and we want to avoid it so badly. And that might look like job loss because your boss wants you to do something underhanded, but to follow the lead of God, you must be honest and render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. So now you're facing a potential job loss, or you might have a family or friend, a family member or friend that you might lose because you've been telling them the gospel and they don't want to hear it anymore but you know that you must proclaim the gospel to these people and tell them about Christ and of their great need for a Savior, how to avoid hell. And you know you have to obey that great commission. And you might lose your friend. You might lose social standing because you know what the Scripture teaches about marriage and and sexuality and gender and all of these things that our culture is ridiculously opposed to. And you might lose social standing because when asked, or when, when talking about it, you stand on what the Scriptures say, and now everyone thinks you're a bigot, so you're going to lose social standing because of your obedience to the Word. Your relationship might end because you're in a relationship where, where one of the partners wants to have sex, and you know we're, we're not married yet, and we shouldn't do that, and they're not down with abstinence. So now this relationship might end, or you're in a marriage where you want out so badly because your spouse treats you like garbage, but you know you have no biblical grounds for divorce, and now through obedience to God and following Him, you're hemmed into this place where you can't get out, and you're treated poorly. Or ultimately, it may lead you to a place like many martyrs and many of our brothers and sisters in other countries where they're in actual danger of dying because they're Christians. In those moments, whenever you can see the Egyptians coming, whatever, whatever that is for you, that list is not exhaustive. You'll be so tempted to sin and take the easy route and want out and want to shake off the leadership of the Lord. Though the commands of God give joy and life, obeying them can result in much temporary earthly pain. And this is because this present evil age that is ruled by the God of this world, Satan, seeks to destroy what God loves. He hates us because he hates him. Jesus says, the world hates me and they'll hate you also. But take heart. But take heart because when we suffer because of our obedience to God we can know that we belong to him. Because this is always what happens to God's people. Right? Look at Daniel. Right? Lion's den, fiery furnace. Look at Isaiah. History tells us that Isaiah was sawed in half for calling the people to repentance and obedience to what the Lord told him to do. Look at Paul, who got his head cut off and was imprisoned for years Because of his gospel proclaiming, look at Jesus Christ, Who, because he was preaching, the kingdom of God is here, repent, believe on me, I am God. He was crucified. This is always the law of the people of God, that obedience to him will result in suffering. So when we are pursued by Satan, whenever we find ourselves in these hard spots where it's going to cost us something, we can definitely know that we belong to God because Satan does not pursue his own. He goes after God's elect because he hates God. And if it were possible, he would throw them from him. So this all stands opposed to the prosperity gospel and all of its derivatives, all the junk you're going to see on TBN or from Bethel Church or wherever it's at that would tell you obedience equals an easy life, that obedience equals nothing but temporary blessings from God. That's bogus. That's not what we see in the scriptures. It's not what we see for Israel here. Following God's lead is hard. Jesus Christ himself says so. If any man would come after me, he must be willing to take up his cross and die to follow me. Well, let's see how the people of God respond to this trial. The Egyptians are coming. Verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we have said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. The people respond by complaining against Moses. And to complain against the prophet of God is the same as complaining against God Himself. So essentially what they're doing is they're accusing God of taking them out to the wilderness to be slaughtered. We've obeyed your commands. You've brought us here to die. They're accusing God that your leadership is horrible. Your leadership is not worthy of our obedience because you are not trustworthy because you've led us to a place of suffering. The people have no grounds for this accusation. Not not a bit of ground to stand on for this. God has promised to save them, and has He not been faithful thus far to save them? They're out of Egypt, and they weren't before. He said, I'll bring them out. He's doing everything that He said He would so far. But they accuse the Lord because they have no trust in Him. They have forgotten His faithfulness. They have forgotten His steadfast love and compassion for them, they have forgotten his promise. And this is sin that they would accuse him of this. This is bearing false witness about God that he's not trustworthy, that he won't do everything that he's promised to do. This is blasphemy against God. God would be totally warranted to strike them all down or to hand them over to the Egyptians for this kind of accusation. if we're going to be honest, every single person in this room that's been following Christ and had to suffer because of it, we have all felt like these people, have we not? It was was better then. When the suffering comes, and it seems like our only option is to submit to the life that we once lived because we can see the pain coming and we really want to avoid the pain, we feel abandoned by God. And then we begin to wish we were back in Egypt. We say things to ourselves. It was easier before I followed you. I've done everything you've told me to do as best as I can, and it's not gotten easier. Trouble keeps coming, and it hurts, and I want to go back to where I once was because it was easier there. And in those moments, the temptation to submit to sin becomes almost unbearable for us. And the old life begins to look attractive. We desire to give in to the sin, whatever that might be, in order to keep our job or in order to, to leave the marriage we want out of or to keep the relationship that we're in or to keep the friend or to keep the family member close to us. and We become willing to do almost anything because it was easier then. How quickly we forget what our slavery was like. How quickly we forget how bad it was in Egypt. How quickly we forget the desperation that we felt knowing no peace with God. We are so quick to forget how much we once feared death. And how much we once feared the wrath to come. And how empty and meaningless our life was apart from knowing Jesus. How quick we are to forget. And because we've forgotten, we really begin to consider leading ourselves again. Forget the Bible. Forget what it says. Forget the commands of God. Forget his leadership. I'm going to live my own life because it's easier that way. How does God respond to this kind of thinking from his people? And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the, dry, or made the sea dry land and the waters were divided and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So through Moses, this kind of accusation to this kind of fear to this kind of thinking that it was better then that we lived in slavery instead of dying here in the wilderness because God has abandoned us. Through Moses, God tells us what to do in these situations when we feel that way. He says, fear not. Stand firm. Look to me and go forward. And so don't be, fear, fear not. Don't be afraid of the trial because God has not forsaken you. In the words of Matthew Henry, he says, those whom God leads, he will not lose or leave. If he's led you here, he's not going to abandon you once you get in it. So fear not. Stand firm. Stand firm in what? Stand firm in what you know, that God's leadership is good no matter what it's going to cost here. He says, look and see the salvation of the Lord. Look to God to bring you through this. Trust Him. That's what the whole Bible is about. God creates, God promises to redeem, and then ultimately God redeems. And all in between, He's saying, trust me. Trust me that I will do what is good. And God often brings us to places where we are going to suffer in order to increase our trust, right? Because how do I know that I can trust Stephen with my money unless I'm put in a place where I have to give Stephen my wallet and say, hold on to it for a week for me? I won't really ever trust him with my cash until I'm put in a position where I have to give him my wallet. In the same way, God puts us in places where we are forced to trust him so that our faith might increase. He's saying, look to me and trust me. And then he says, push ahead. Push ahead in what? He's telling them to go forward into the sea. He's continuing to lead them. Right? Push forward. Push ahead in following his leadership. Push ahead in obedience to God's revealed will in Scripture. That's what he's telling us. God is going to handle it. That's what Moses says. We need only to be silent. We need to trust him to do what's best for us. And further even if God wouldn't have promised to do anything for them, it would be better to die in the wilderness with God, free and with hope of salvation, than to simply live in slavery without God and with no hope. We need to have the mindset of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in, 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 in the book of Daniel where they say, we believe that God is going to bring us out of this trial and that we aren't going to burn to death in this furnace but if not we still are not going to worship this idol we need to have that same kind of resolve i believe that god is going to handle this and bring me out but if he doesn't i'm still not going back i'm still going to follow him because his leadership is better than life knowing him is better than life And God went on to provide an escape from slavery for the people. And God promises to do the same for us. He promises to make an escape whenever we're tempted. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So God provides, He promises to give us a way to endure the temptation to go back and die in Egypt. And how does He do that? By giving an escape. Now I want to make a note here. God does not promise to escape; that you will escape the pain. He doesn't promise that. He doesn't say the suffering isn't going to come. What He's promising here is to give us the strength to continue to follow Him faithfully and evade that sin and not submit again to what we once were. He says, I will give you the strength to do that. Just keep pushing forward. So we don't have to go back to the old life. So though it may hurt and cost us much, God will graciously provide the escape from sin if we continue to push forward under his leadership. And I don't know how he's going to do this in every situation, but he promises to do it. So we trust him because every word of the Bible is true. And he is faithful to us even when we aren't, because he's gracious. The story goes on to tell us, for the sake of time, the story goes on to tell us that after the Israelites go through on dry ground and get to the other side of the sea, the Egyptians follow them in, and the Lord brings the waves crashing down on the Egyptians, and they all die. Those who were pursuing the people of God are destroyed by God because he protects his own. So God, once and for all, ended the opposition and pursuit of Pharaoh, And the slavery of his people to Pharaoh. And God's people go free to serve him. God's enemies are conquered. And God is victorious. And because he is, so are the people. He crushes their enemies. So how does this point to Jesus? We'll hit these quickly. How does this story point to Jesus? First, and and the easiest one to see, is Jesus never said following him was going to be easy. But he said it would be worth it. Matthew 7, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Jesus promises us this in the Sermon on the Mount. I want you to consider this. He says the way will be hard, but I want you to know this. Jesus Christ has bought our salvation with his perfect life, atoning death and resurrection. He's accomplished our salvation for us. And what does he ask us to do? Will you suffer for a little time following me and trusting me and I will give you everything. On the other side, what a great gain for such a small cost. He says though it will be hard, it will be worth it. Second, like the pillar of cloud and fire, we saw at the end of chapter 13, said it did not depart from Israel by day or by night. It was always there. Jesus Christ promises to be with us forever. You guys know this verse. Uh, Matthew twenty-eight twenty, the last half. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we may feel as if we've been left in the wilderness, but He is there. That's why we don't walk by how we feel. We walk by what we know that the Bible tells us. He has not abandoned. He sees and He knows and will see us through because He is a faithful Savior. And thirdly, should we continue on in faith until death, we will see a day when God, or when like God, destroyed Egypt's army, Jesus Christ is going to trample sin and Satan and the enemies of his people. 1 Corinthians 15, Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. There will come a day where we will not suffer anymore, and Christ will be victorious, and we will have victory through him never to suffer again. Knowing that is Helps me to push forward. It won't always be like this. Christ said it would be like this for a time, but not always, that he will conquer every enemy that he has. So God knows what he's doing. And his leadership is, and his word is trustworthy. It's worth our following. We can trust him to lead us even when he is, his leading us puts us in places of hardship because it is a joy-giving, life-producing leadership even in the midst of the pain And there is no life outside of him. But I, I want to end with this. This thought of the grace of God. This is astounding. He was merciful to and saved the faithless Israelites who accused him of forsaking them. Did he not? Verses after saves them. He parted the sea for a people who sinned against him. Our God is measureless in grace and abounding in steadfast love for his people. So I know that we have all been in the same situation and thought the same wicked thoughts towards God. And God offers grace and forgiveness for that. Jesus Christ suffered the wrath of God for even that sin. So if that's you, you know that that's been you, confess it to God and seek forgiveness and continue to follow Christ because he forgives it's the best sentence in the Bible. God is just to forgive us. So God has not abandoned you and he will forgive you and love you as if it had never happened. All because of Christ. Because like Paul tells Timothy, when we are faithless, he is still faithful. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being gracious for being a good leader that's worthy of our obedience. God, thank you for the great gain that you promise us in exchange for a small cost. God, press in on us the the truth that our life is nothing compared to eternity, that you ask us to, to live for 70 or 80 years suffering things from time to time. And in exchange, you'll give us eternal glory with you. God, stamp eternity on our eyes that we might see things as they really are and not submit again to our slavery. Forgive us for the times that we accuse you of not being a good God or a good leader. Father, give us a high view of your law. Let us joyfully submit to your leadership because it is joy-giving. God, lead us. And lead us into righteousness for your name's sake. In Christ's name, amen.